You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today's episode is going to be a little different, but in a very interesting way, if in my opinion. We're not going to talk directly about ducks or geese or swans or any other bird for that matter, but rather about plants, specifically wetland vegetation and restoration of that vegetation to be exact. Now, there is one plant in this story that is of particular interest, and it's a plant that a lot of people will be familiar with. But it's not of interest from the perspective of us wanting to restore it or be kind to it, you might say, but rather from the perspective of our efforts that are being undertaken to eliminate it. It's a plant that is most well known because of its detrimental effects on wetlands across North America, with one very notable exception, which we might touch on as we get into this. The particular culprit here is an exotic invasive species, and it's known by many names, Phragmites, common reed, and as is described in Louisiana, rosocane. But ultimately, this is a story about restoration after the removal of this pernicious plant. Also of importance, this is an episode that features another one of our DU Fellowship recipients, this one being responsible for the research that we will be talking about. Today's guest is an aspiring, talented PhD candidate at Utah State University, Emily Tarsa. Emily, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Thanks for having me. We want to start out with you providing a brief introduction to yourself, both personally and professionally. And you know, where are you from? How did you end up at Utah State? What are your interests? Those types of things. Sure. Yeah. So I actually grew up in upstate New York, up in the middle of the Adirondack Mountains. Um, and it was pretty fortunate as a child. I had a lot of um, exposure and experience to the outdoors from a pretty young age, um, particularly uh, wetlands. Um, and then as an undergraduate, I decided to pursue that career um, in environmental science um, and wetlands um, and got a degree in environmental science from one of the SUNY schools. So it was the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry or SUNY ESF, um, which is just a small environmental science school in um, Syracuse, New York. Um, and so during my time in my undergraduate uh, career, I did a lot of internships and um, semester work, uh, worked for a few different organizations. I worked with the New York State Parks, um, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, the Adirondack Watershed Institute. Um, and a lot of work that I did um, was primarily focused on uh, aquatic invasive species removal, um, as well as some terrestrial invasive species, and then a lot of um, work with education and outreach um, surrounding those species. Um, and then after graduation, I joined AmeriCorps um, and ended up out here in Utah. Um, and my AmeriCorps stint was an 11-month position at a local nature center. Um, and during that time, I did a lot of environmental education, but also 
spent a lot of time doing habitat restoration work on the property um, and specifically uh, did a lot of work on wetland restoration. So the wetlands in this property are pretty degraded, um, heavily invaded by Phragmites. Um, so I worked with a team to put together a grant to secure um, some funding for wetland restoration. Um, and then ended up staying on full time for a few years at the Nature Center, um, where I oversaw a lot of the um, the restoration pieces of that grant. You know, mobilized a lot of volunteers to get involved in the habitat restoration portion. Um, yeah, and then in 2017, I joined the Wetland Ecology and Restoration Lab at Utah State University, where I currently am, um, and I'm working with Dr. Karin Kettering up there. So you have been busy. I'm impressed at all of those all of those places you've been and all those accomplishments. It's great to have you on to talk about this. So congratulations to you for 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 all those adventures. Thanks. Yeah, it's been fun. Now you mentioned uh, SUNY ESF, and I think you kind of referenced it as a a small uh, small university, small college there. But it's one that's very well known to me and probably to listeners of this podcast by now. We've had a couple of guests. Uh, one guest in particular has been with us a couple of times, uh, Dr. Michael Schumer. He's actually going to be on with us uh, again on some additional episodes uh, featuring some of his weather severity index work and its influence on waterfowl migration. And then, of course, a lot of uh, a lot of my professional colleagues, uh, both in the waterfowl uh, profession as well as natural resource natural resources profession in general came through SUNY ESF. So I'm very familiar with it. And so that's uh, come from a good place. Yeah, I'm always impressed. I mean, it's a, it's a small school in number, but I feel like I run into SUNY ESF people all over the place in this field. Emily, one other question I had for you. A lot of the graduate students that we've talked with with so far have some, uh, most of them come from a, a an outdoors type background, but I think the majority of them thus far are also going to have some interest in uh, intersection in their background with birds, migratory birds of some sorts. Do you have any of that or are you coming at this primarily from a wetland science, wetland ecology fascination perspective? Yeah, I come from it more from a, um, a wetland ecology fascination perspective and specifically um, a plant perspective. So I've always just been fascinated and really intrigued by plants themselves um, and kind of gravitated towards wetland ecosystems, just recognizing their importance on the landscape. And of course, the importance of plants in those ecosystems is really foundational um, pieces to help support waterfowl and other migratory birds, as well as a lot of other wildlife. Yeah, no doubt. That's always, that's something that we within Ducks Unlimited uh, try to communicate well. We obviously have a fascination and a, a passion uh, with with the birds themselves, but what is it that the, the birds depend on, but the, the wetlands, the resources that those wetlands and, and other habitats provide? So uh, it, this is pretty cool to have a have some research that we're going to talk about here that relates directly to the habitats upon which these birds uh, depend. And so delighted to have you on. With that, I want to uh, I want to mention uh, acknowledge the the Ducks Unlimited Fellowship that you received and congratulate you for that. It is the Spencer T. and Ann W. Olin Foundation Wetlands and Waterfowl Research Fellowship. It is awarded annually. It's open to graduate students enrolled at any North American university. And it's it's designed to help advance and support research that deals with any aspect of waterfowl or wetland biology that promises to have some uh, some 
some advancement, help us advance our conservation mission. And so you uh, remind me here, Emily, when did you receive this, this fellowship? Was it, is this your second year of receiving this fellowship? Yeah, this is my second year. Congratulations to you and thanks as always to the sponsors and supporters of our, our fellowships. We're always, we're always happy to support, uh, support graduate students that uh, graduate students of today who will be our professional leaders of tomorrow. Um, so kudos to you for that. Emily, I want to transition now to talking about your research and I've kind of introduced it here, but the official title for, that I got from your research proposal is called Seed-Based Restoration Following Removal of Phragmites in the Great Salt Lake. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to turn it over to you now to tell us a bit more about this, why it's important and kind of how you're going about it. Uh, if the title has changed, you can share that with us. I, I know how that goes as, you know, as you make your way through the graduate research program, the, the title on day one of your project isn't always the title as it ends up. So just share with us a general overview of your research and why it's important and what you've been up to. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, my research is focused uh, mainly on Great Salt Lake wetlands, although this specific research can be applied to a lot of other wetlands in North America. Um, but we work specifically with Great Salt Lake wetlands because they're hemispherically recognized. Um, they're incredibly important waterfowl and migratory bird species um, for those for those species. Um, they're, the Great Salt Lake wetlands themselves are located along the Central and Pacific flyways. So we see millions of birds pass through this system. Um, and it provides this really unique habitat because the Great Salt Lake itself is a terminal lake. Um, so there are no outlets. So you have a lot of open water that's very hypersaline, um, but then you have a few freshwater inflows. So it provides this, or it creates this mosaic of um, salt water and brackish water and fresh water um, that supports a lot of really unique plant systems, and then in turn supports um, a lot of waterfowl and migratory bird species. Um, but unfortunately, like a lot of other wetlands in North America. Uh, Great Salt Lake wetlands are threatened by Phragmites australis, um, a really aggressive invasive species, which I'm sure uh, many of the listeners are familiar uh, with. If you spent a lot of time in wetlands, um, you've probably come across this plant. Um, so previous research in our lab um, has found some effective treatment and control techniques for Phragmites, uh, but we found that the native revegetation is really limited in areas where Phragmites has been treated. Um, and of course, this is context dependent. So sometimes we see that native vegetation coming back in some areas, but it's not uh, coming back very reliably. And then often what comes back is not necessarily those desirable perennial graminoids that provide that high quality seeds for waterfowl. Um, so things like a lot of the bulrush species are really high quality um, native plants that we don't often see coming back. Um, so my research specifically, I'm looking at how we can improve revegetation success of these desirable species after Phragmites treatment. Um, and my research is primarily focused on rest restoration via seeds, um, which has a lot of logistical benefits, um, but unfortunately using seeds and restoration often results in really high mortality. Um, so there's a lot of research on seed-based restoration outcomes in upland systems, um, and they found that about 90 to 95% of the seeds that they sow actually um, die, so fail to establish, specifically between germination and emergence. Um, so there's this huge bottleneck of recruitment in the very early um, life cycle of a plant. 
Um, and then there's less research on using seeds in wetland, but qualitatively, we see pretty low native plant recruitment in seeded areas as well. Um, so I'm specifically looking at the different mechanisms that are driving the early stages of a plant's life cycle across environmental conditions um, so that we can better understand how to target the right species, um, the right seed sources to use in restoration, so we can ultimately overcome this seedling bottleneck. Um, and we can really understand these mechanisms by looking specifically at functional traits that drive these early life stages. Um, and those early life stages we're thinking about are seed germination, um, seedling establishment, seedling survival. Um, and then functional traits themselves are just these morphological um, or physiological characteristics of a plant that influence its growth and survival. Um, so for example, if we think about adult plant functional traits, we might think about plant height. Um, or the number of seeds a plant produces. And this can help us compare um, the characteristics of a plant across species. Um, but then these plant functional traits that um, influence those really early life stages, we can call them regeneration traits. Uh, but these are things like the mass of a seed, which can influence later seedling survival, particularly under harsh conditions. Um, we can also think about root elongation rate uh, being one of those regeneration traits um, or germination traits like the time to germination. This is probably my favorite time in these conversations whenever I, I ask our guests to introduce their research, tell us about, they provide an overview of their research because as, as you're talking, as our guests talk, at least a half dozen or a dozen questions come to mind that, <laughs> that I want to answer uh, or that I want to ask. And, you know, the one first thing I'll say here is I find this topic a, a pretty fascinating example of how our our application of science in support of waterfowl conservation and waterfowl management has evolved over the decades where we initially started out many years ago trying to understand basic waterfowl ecology, basic habitat needs of waterfowl. And then once we have those questions answered, we begin to try to manage the, the manage and conserve the wetlands that, and other grasslands and other uh, cover types that these birds need. But then we learn about the challenges that are facing those, those habitat types. And then we try to figure out through scientific investigations how to address those challenges. And this is a very specific example of that where, where we have, I'm sure there was a lot of science invested to figure out how we control Phragmites. But then once we get Phragmites controlled, then we're like, okay, well, now we need to restore the vegetation to something more beneficial. And then there's some science that kind of goes into trying a few things there. But then you realize we really need to understand some of the details of what's driving the differential germination and success of these restoration efforts. And, and ultimately, this all, this all relates to some efficiency and effectiveness of the actions that are being put in place. So it's, there's a, a long string of scientific efforts that, uh, that can be referenced in this entire conversation, which is, uh, to me, being a scientist, it's fascinating to think back through the through the evolution of our application and use uh, of science. So um, it's it's pretty cool, and I'm excited to help bring this story to our listeners, and, and happy to have you uh, doing this work. And so this is where I want to back up and ask you a couple of questions, though. Um, in terms of Phragmites, you mentioned that uh, work through the lab there has has identified some successful ways to, to get Phragmites under control. 
What can you tell us briefly about that, uh, the, the type of control methods that have worked in the Great Salt Lake? Yeah, so our lab has done a lot of research on this, as I've mentioned. Um, specifically, we had Chad Craney, a master's student, and Christine Rohal, a PhD student, who's actually a former DU fellow. Um, but they did a large-scale um, study in Great Salt Lake wetlands on these different control treatments for Phragmites. So they looked at different timing of mowing, um, timing of herbicide application, and then two different types of herbicide, the glyphosate and the amazapyr. Um, and they found that a summer mow and then a fall glyphosate spray um, repeated over a three-year cycle was pretty effective at reducing Phragmites cover, um, reducing Phragmites inflorescence, so reducing that seed production. Um, and that's really the, the most common treatment cycle that's now used on Great Salt Lake wetlands. Um, although it's pretty unique here, we also do um, a lot of grazing in our wetlands, uh, which seems really counterintuitive to wetland health. I spent 13 years in Louisiana, so grazing in wetlands is nothing foreign to me. <laughs> That happens down there quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of grazing here too. And we found it's really effective at controlling a lot of that Phragmites biomass. So just the standing dead Phragmites uh, stalks and litter that are left after Phragmites treatment. Um, and then Phragmites, um, another form of treatment that's, that's common in other areas is burning. Um, again, that's more of a biomass control technique as opposed to actually killing Phragmites. Um, and we do that occasionally here on Great Salt Lake, although that's a bit limited because we um, have some other air quality issues in this region. And so burning uh, can only be done on a few days out of the year. Um, so it's pretty restrictive here. But generally, we just see this three-year cycle of uh, mowing in the summer, spraying glyphosate in the fall, um, repeated over three years to really control Phragmites. Okay. And so then that's what leads you to the restoration uh, restoration phase. What what can you tell me about when invasive Phragmites really became an issue in Great Salt Lake? Yeah, so it became an issue relatively recently, especially compared to some of the wetlands on the East Coast. Um, the first recorded herbarium record of Phragmites here in Utah was in 1993. Uh, but before that, anecdotally, there was a few patches of Phragmites here and there, um, nothing major. Um, but then we had these really large flooding events um, in the 80s that wiped out a lot of the native vegetation. Um, and as those floods receded, it left a lot of open, disturbed areas. So there was this highlight um, high nutrient environment because a lot of these wetlands are pretty eutrophic. Um, and that was just the ideal conditions for Phragmites seeds to germinate and really take hold. Um, and so since then, we've seen many tens of thousands of acres of Phragmites all across Great Salt Lake wetlands. For the people that may not, uh, for the people listening to this that may not be too familiar with Phragmites and, and how it impacts uh, wetland quality, Give us a, give us a bit of an assessment on why it's problematic, and you know you, this can be from any perspective you want. You can uh, approach it from a wetland bird perspective. That would obviously be a, my preference. I have a bias though, <laughs> but but for those people that may not be familiar with it, why is it uh, why is it problematic for uh, for in reducing the, the value of wetlands? Yeah, so Phragmites um, is an incredibly aggressive plant, as I mentioned, and it really changes both the structure and the composition of the wetland vegetation, which in, in turn changes the, um, the habitat quality for a lot of waterfowl species. Um, so structurally, Phragmites um, 
has a very dense growth, um, really thick vegetative structure. Um, and so it makes food generally unavailable. Um, it also reduces the usable space for a lot of these waterfowl species. Um, and then it outcompetes a lot of the native vegetation that provide um, much more high quality food resources um, for waterfowl. So it, it, it's kind of two things. It, it takes up that usable space, um, really changes what that wetland uh, looks like. It changes, uh, makes it less heterogeneous. There's less open water. Um, uh, and then of course, you know, it, it outcompetes all of these native plants that these birds really depend on. Do you know anything about how waterfowl abundances during winter or any other time of year might have been affected by the expansion of Phragmites? Do we have any understanding of that? Yeah. So what we have, um, you know, we worked, we work really closely with a lot of managers on the Great Salt Lake. And so we have a lot of qualitative and anecdotal um, evidence from these managers who have been and worked in these systems for decades um, and have noticed a really sharp decline in waterfowl abundance in these wetlands that have been dominated by Phragmites. Um, and this is also supported by literature done in, in other areas of the country. So, you know, areas like Lake Erie, um, the Great Lakes region, they've found that Phragmites really changes, um, reduces the, the diversity of bird species that you find um, in the Phragmites stands. And again, just kind of takes over that usable space and really reduces the number of waterfowl species specifically that you see. Um. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Utilizing those wetlands. I have one more question about Phragmites, and then we're going to talk more about uh, your actual research. This is all just important background material to emphasize the importance of your work. But uh, how familiar how familiar are you with the different varieties of Phragmites that grow along the Gulf Coast? I, I actually did some research. Some of my PhD research was in the Great Lakes, so I'm very familiar with the the significant issue that Phragmites is is posing for wetlands. In, in that region. But when I got to the Gulf Coast, Phragmites, at least in southeastern Louisiana, was viewed in a bit of a different light, rosocane, as I mentioned, it's called down there. How familiar familiar are you with uh, with its, its existence down there, the different varieties that, that exist in that landscape, um, and how, it, how it's viewed differently uh, from other regions? Yeah, it's interesting. Phragmites, um, so I, I can speak a little bit to the East Coast perspective, um, you know, along the Chesapeake Bay and some of these coastal wetlands. I know Phragmites is viewed slightly more favorably um, than what we kind of think about uh, here on the Great Salt Lake, at least, and in many other inland wetlands, um, because it does have some functional value in terms of um, rising sea levels. Um, you know, it can help kind of stabilize the shore and retain a lot of those wetland ecosystems. Um, in Great Salt Lake, it's, it's a bit different um, because we don't have those sea level rise issues. Um, and we have such a, an important habitat for a lot of white waterfowl and migratory bird species. Phragmites is really interesting uh, because it um, is just a, an invasive haplotype. So it has this, there's a native Phragmites that we see 
Um, in some uh, wetlands in Utah um, and other wetlands across North America, uh, but the Phragmites that we know that's pretty invasive is um, just a subspecies of that native, native Phragmites and has just kind of dominated a lot of these systems. I wanted to kind of cover this a little bit to, to emphasize that, yes, while Phragmites is generally uh, spoken about as an exotic invasive that is highly problematic, there are a few areas where it does, as you mentioned, provide some functional value. So um, it's always important to view those things in, in context. So I guess with that, Emily, let's move on to, uh, to some of your research. Sure. And, and what you were, how you're kind of going about trying to help us figure out ways to be more efficient and effective with restoration following the removal of Phragmites. You kind of already introduced this. And so I'm going to pick up with one question I have for you here. You chose when evaluating and trying to identify morphological traits or physiological traits that are kind of most influential in determining the successful restoration of these different, you know, beneficial plant species. You chose four, four different species to evaluate. Which were those four and why those four different species? Yeah, so we, we chose a few native species. Um, we chose alkali bulrush, hard stem bulrush, three square bulrush, um, and we also looked at salt grass. Um, and then we did a few additional native species. So we looked at common spike rush, which is an Eleocris species, um, as well as a Juncus species. Um, and we chose these species because they're pretty desirable in Great Salt Lake wetlands. Um, the bulrushes especially uh, provide a really high quality um, seed for waterfowl. Um, so a lot of managers really target those species specifically during restoration. Um, and then we chose some of those native species like saltgrass, for example, um, does really well over a, a broad range of environmental conditions. Um, and it seems to be at least anecdotally uh, pretty effective at suppressing Phragmites seed germination. Um, so we thought it would be interesting to look at the traits of that species. Um, and then our Eleocris and our Juncus species have, um, you know, a different growth form. So we wanted to kind of capture a diversity of native species that we often see in this wetland um, to kind of compare uh, how those plants are operating in those very early life stages. Um, and then, of course, we also looked at Phragmites seeds. So we wanted to compare the differences between our invasive Phragmites and all of these native species um, to see what's happening at that germination and establishment stage. Emily, I, I don't want to get into too much of the detail on your methods. Um, that's a conversation that you and I can have probably on the side at some point, because I'm sure I'm interested in all those kind of details, but we try not to go too deep in some of these. But just generally speaking, for, for the average audience, you might say, what are the most important aspects of your research? Like, how do you, are you trying to provide some science-based guidance on how to, um, on how our restoration efforts for these particular plants can be more successful. I mean, how do you go? How do you go about that? What are the key aspects of your methods th that helps you answer that question? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so in this research, we're looking specifically at different species, um, and so the idea there is, if we look at these traits across species, this will allow us to identify which native species species are going to be most competitive against Phragmites reinvasion, or will perform better in whatever specific environmental conditions exist at a restoration site. Um, so that's why we chose, we collected seeds from all of these different native species as well as Phragmites. Um, and then we also 
collected seeds from many different regions in the Intermountain West. So we collected seeds from Montana, um, from Great Salt Lake wetlands, from wetlands down in Nevada. Um, and the idea with this is we wanted to try and identify how much variation of these traits exist within species um, to help us identify uh, the best source populations for actually sourcing seeds, um, depending on the goals of a restoration project. Um, so for example, we might find that alkali bulrush seeds that are sourced from wetlands in Nevada uh, may, may be better able to tolerate those hotter and drier conditions that we are expecting to see in Great Salt Lake wetlands. Um, so that might be um, a really targeted restoration decision to source seeds from that area. Um, so we collected all of these seeds, we brought them back to the lab, we looked at all of these different seed traits, so measured things like the weight of seeds, um, the dimensions of the seeds, um, and then we grew all of these species and source combinations in these different environmental conditions. So we had three different temperature regimes and then we have a, a high and a low water level. Um, and then we tracked germination of all of these seeds in these conditions, measured some of those seedling traits. Um, and so with that data, we can get a better idea um, of how well these plants are performing in those environmental conditions. Um, and we can compare that the, the native plant performance with the performance of Phragmites to try and identify which species or which source populations within a species um, are going to be a better um, better choice for revegetation re in these wetlands. It sound, Emily, it sounds like then there was some greenhouse aspect of this of this study that it seems like there would have to be in order for you to kind of control those different environmental conditions. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So the first portion of this is just measuring those traits in the growth chamber. Um, and then in a few months, we're starting our final greenhouse experiment where we're replicating um, the same temperature and water levels, uh, growing all of these species and source populations out in the greenhouse, um, and then tracking, again, germ emergence, establishment, or mortality, um, and then estimating our end-of-season percent cover. And so that's kind of our estimate estimation of how well these plants are going to perform by looking at that percent cover at the end of the season for each of those species and source um, combinations. What are the different environmental conditions that you're trying to control for uh, in, in this experiment? Yeah, so we're looking at three different temperature regimes. Um, they're day and nighttime temperature uh, fluctuations to kind of mimic what we see naturally. Um, and we have a temperature regime that represents kind of early season seeding on Great Salt Lake. Um, we have a later summer seeding on Great Salt Lake temperature. And then we have a temperature that represents uh, a future climate change projection scenario um, in the Great Salt Lake. And then we have those two different water levels. So we have kind of the ideal saturated conditions where all water is available. And then we have a drought stress treatment. Okay. All right. So uh, water depth and or water saturation and, and temperature, right? So uh, this is yeah, this is pretty cool to think about where this goes then. So if you're a restoration manager out in the Great Salt Lake and you've controlled Phragmites uh, and you're wanting to restore that area to some more beneficial native vegetation, you can, they'll be able to, those people will be able to use your research to say, okay, if we're going to be doing restoration during this time of the year and if our water level conditions at that site are, let's X, you know, whatever they may be, then your research would tell them they're most likely to be successful with a certain species, or I guess it could go another way if they if they're 
if they have an objective of restoring alkali bulrush, they could then look across their landscape to identify the sites where the conditions and time periods best match what your data say with regard to likely success of that restoration effort. Does that, does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. And we are um, using this data to develop a model that will have a very um, like user-friendly interface that managers can use. And as you mentioned, you can you can do it from either perspective. You know, this is my site. These are my conditions. What's going to be most effective here? Uh, what, what plant should I restore? Or I really want this desired plant here. Um, so which area should I choose to maximize success? You may have already mentioned this and I, and I just miss, missed it, but uh, w- is a next step or maybe it's a logical next step, I don't know if this is planned or not, but to do some field-based experiments using your data uh, to sort of experimentally, experimentally restore some sites based on your recommendations and then measure the outcomes in the field? Yeah, that is definitely the next step for this research. Um, We do have a master's student in our lab who is currently working on some of these field-based applications, um, looking at these functional traits of the same species that I'm looking at. Um, And then, yeah, in the future, we're going to expand those native species, but then really test how well our data um, performs in these wetlands to try and uh, refine this model and kind of refine these um, this guidance that we provide for restoration. Emily, I'm uh, I'm about to the end of the questions that I have for you. Uh, the one remaining that I have is how far along are you in your research? And then, uh, you know, personally, professionally for you, what's next, if you know? Yeah, so I, this is the fourth year of my PhD program. Um, and I have probably two years left. Um, in terms of this research, we're just wrapping up this greenhouse experiment um, in the next few months. Um, and then they'll just be, you know, the uh, the grind of analyzing all the data, putting everything together. Um, yeah, and then post post PhD, I it's still kind of up in the air. What's next? So we'll see when we get there. Okay. Well, I suspect you'll start looking to the job market in some form or fashion. Yes. All right, well, good luck on that. Let's see. Before we wrap up, I do want to give you an opportunity to acknowledge some of your funding partners. But before we get to that, are there any other aspects of this research or any important revelations that you want to share at this at this time? I, I'm not not asking you to share your any preliminary results, but anything that you believe would be of interest relative to this story uh, for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what what you touched on earlier is a really interesting point to kind of hit home. Um, You know, I think kind of the the general perspective or kind of the previous um, approach to restoration was just, you know, throw these seeds down or introduce these plants um, and, and, you know, they'll all come back. Or um, a lot of times in wetlands, there was just this expectation that as you remove Phragmites, things can just kind of passively come back on their own. Um, But as you mentioned earlier, there's so many uh, little details um, and and little aspects of this research that are really important for us to kind of figure out to, you know, bolster and improve this entire ecosystem for waterfowl and wildlife and, and, and humans, because we all rely on these wetland ecosystems as well. Thank you for that, Emily. Before we go, I want to give you a chance to acknowledge uh, any of your funding, uh, all of your funding partners. Like I've said many times, there's nothing that we do in waterfowl management or in waterfowl and wetland research that's really done by a single entity. And I suspect that's the case also in in your situation here. So just want to make sure I give you an opportunity to acknowledge your funding partners. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are incredibly grateful um, and appreciative of all, of all the support that we've received. Um, and so, of course, um, the Spencer T. and Anne Olin uh, Fellowship from Ducks Unlimited has been incredibly helpful in, in helping us do this work. Um, we also I have a fellowship from the Garden Club of America, um, an ecological restoration fellowship, um, which has been really helpful. Uh, we've also received a lot of funding from some state and public agencies. So so specifically the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands, uh, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, our Utah Department of Agriculture and Food, um, and then the USU Ecology Center and the USU Extension um, has also financially supported a lot of this research, um, as well as the Public Lands Initiative, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we have some federal uh, support. Um, and then the SALT Institute and uh, the Utah Agricultural Experiment Station. Um, and then I also just want to give a huge shout out and thanks to all of the collaborators and the technicians who have really helped to make this project possible. Being a graduate student myself at one time, um, I know that there are a host of people that go into making our research possible. Uh, so, so yeah, thanks for recognizing those. And it, it, this has been fun for me. It's been informative for me. I hope our listeners have found it informative and educational as well. We, we love talking about ducks, geese, swans, and other migratory birds and all the interesting aspects of their biology and ecology. And we're all interested in sustaining those populations for the benefit of people. But ultimately, that depends fundamentally on the conservation and effective management of the habitats upon which they depend, which includes wetlands all across North America, wetlands of all different types. And as we introduced at the very beginning, those wetlands and other habitats, uh, habitat types are facing immense challenges. The research that you've talked about is addressing just one of those many challenges. And so it's always important to remind folks that, that, that ultimately without the habitats, we cannot have the populations that we all desire. So, um, so Emily, thank you so much for your role in that. Thank you for contributing to our knowledge base and for all your work in support of waterfowl and wetlands conservation. It's been great having you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. A special thanks to our guest on today's show, Emily Tarsa, PhD candidate at Utah State University. We thank her for the great work that she is doing out there in the Great Salt Lake and helping us better understand how to restore wetlands following the removal of Phragmites. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does getting these podcasts edited and out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and spending it with us here on this podcast. And most importantly, for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. <laughs>